This morning we have a continuation of a somewhat breathless dash through the history of early Israel and the Pentateuch. First up is another reading from Genesis, from the Joseph story. Last week we had the beginning of the Joseph story, and today we have the end of it. Also, <coughs> we have two different stories from St. Matthew's Gospel. The Genesis reading is the climax of the story, with Joseph revealing his identity to his long-lost brothers. It doesn't seem reasonable for you to appreciate the importance of this scene without knowing what led up to it, so let me take a few minutes to bring you up to speed. Last week we heard the story of Joseph as far as his having been sold as a household slave in Egypt and being thrown into prison on trumped-up charges. One of Joseph's cellmates was Pharaoh's butler, who had done something to displease Pharaoh and been thrown into prison. He had a dream and asked Joseph to interpret the dream. Joseph told him that he would be restored to his position in the court, and he was. As he was leaving prison for his old position, Joseph asked the butler to remember him. Sometime later, Pharaoh had a pair of very troubling dreams. None of his court wise men could interpret the dreams. The butler remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh of him. Pharaoh summoned Joseph to the court. Pharaoh told Joseph the dreams, and Joseph explained them to him. His explanation was, the two dreams were one. There were to come seven years of bumper crops, far exceeding anything that any could imagine. Then would come seven years of intense famine over all the land. Joseph then advised Pharaoh to appoint overseers who would gather up a fifth of all the food produced each year from the bumper crops and start to carry Egypt through the coming famine. Pharaoh realized that Joseph was a man of exceptional ability, a man who was greatly blessed by his God. He made him his royal vizier with authority over the entire kingdom and gave him direction to do what was necessary to bring Egypt safely through the famine. He arrayed Joseph in royal robes, gave him the king's signet ring as his symbol of authority, and gave him his wife, a wife, Azanath, who later bore him two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph was 30 years old at the time he entered into Pharaoh's service. Joseph traveled throughout all Egypt, gathering into the cities the fifth of the bumper crops from the surrounding fields, until there was so much grain that it could not be counted. When the famine struck, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. He told them to go to Joseph and do whatever Joseph told them to do. So Joseph opened the granaries and sold grain to the people so that they had food. The famine was quite widespread, 
and people came from far and near to buy grain from Joseph. Needless to say, this greatly enriched Pharaoh and possibly Joseph. The famine spread at least as far as Canaan, for Jacob, Joseph's father, heard that there was grain in Egypt and sent his sons there to buy grain that the family might not starve. But Jacob kept his youngest son, Benjamin, with him. When Joseph's half-brothers arrived in Egypt, they were brought before Joseph. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. He questioned them intensely and determined that Jacob and Benjamin were still alive. He sold them only a small amount of grain and directed them to return with Benjamin, who was his only full brother. The half-brothers returned to their father Jacob with sacks of grain and told him that the man in Egypt wanted to see Benjamin. In Jacob's mind, Benjamin had taken the place of Joseph as the favorite son. And Jacob was loath to let him go, lest anything happen to him on the way. Joseph and then Benjamin were Jacob's favorite sons because they only among his twelve sons were the children of Rachel, his first love and favorite wife, for whom he labored all those years under Laban. Rachel had died in childbirth bearing Benjamin, leaving Jacob with only her two sons to remind him of her. The brothers insisted to Jacob that the man in Egypt had told them that unless they brought Benjamin back, they would never see his face again, and of course would get no more grain. Since the family was again very low on food, Jacob at last relented and allowed Benjamin to go to Egypt with his half-brothers. Interesting side note. In our reading from Romans this morning, Paul is at pains to point out that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. The brothers come to Joseph a second time with Benjamin. After making them go through more trials and tests, Joseph relents and reveals himself to his brothers. This is where our reading this morning picks up the story. Joseph is reunited and reconciled with his brothers. It is then told to Pharaoh that Joseph's brothers have come to him. Pharaoh was delighted by the news and directed Joseph to tell his brothers to return again to Canaan and bring their father Jacob and their wives and their children and all their households to Egypt, and they would be given the best of the land. That is the land of Goshen mentioned in the reading. Goshen is located in the northeast of the Nile Delta and appears to have been the finest farmland in all Egypt. Joseph gave them wagons for the journey, and they returned to Canaan and brought to Egypt Jacob and all their families 
and settled in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh personally welcomed Jacob, a great honor. Jacob, in turn, blessed Pharaoh. And they all lived happily ever after, to use the oversimplified prose of the fairy tales. And speaking of oversimplified, that is what I have done to the Joseph story. There is much more to the story. I'm only telling you the highlights. My purpose is to give you something to connect the disparate readings taken from it last Sunday and this. The story is well written with plots and intrigues, schemes and jealousy, and absolutely drips with the life of faith and devotion. In it is the conflict of the interests inherent in two great loves, the most powerful that move us, the love of family and the love of God. We can see in this story a parable of God's testing of his people to see if we will honor him with our faith. If I have at all caught your interest, I encourage you, to take perhaps a half hour and read the story in whole. It begins with chapter 37 of Genesis and is a grand total of 19 pages. It may just be the best read in the Old Testament. It's well worth your time and thought. Turning now to the reading from St. Matthew, we have two very different passages, cheek by jowl. In the first, Jesus says, quote, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth of a man defiles a man, but what comes out of his mouth, that defiles a man, close quote. This is a truly revolutionary statement coming from the Savior. Jewish tradition of the time, carried down to this very day by the Orthodox Jews and some others, was made up of very strict dietary laws based on the book of Leviticus, specifying in minute detail what could be eaten and what was unclean, even what food item could be combined with what other food item. Violating these laws made one defiled, something no good Jew wanted. Yet in this one sentence, Jesus sweeps this all away. He turns it on its head and says that it's what we do, not what we eat, that makes us good or bad. This teaching is the remor more remarkable in the ten chapters earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says this, quote, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. As Jesus is using the word, the law means the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus is part of the law. In our reading this morning, Jesus has swept away part of the law in a few words. It's almost as if we have two different Jesuses, isn't it? Do you ever wonder how the folks who say that every word of the Bible is literally true can reconcile such things as these? And lest we think that the passage in this morning's gospel might be in error, it is reinforced in the book of Acts via a vision to Peter at Joppa with the very same message, which is thrice repeated for emphasis. And to further the emphasis, remember that Acts was written by Luke, while our material this morning is from Matthew. So, we have the same message told two different ways from two distinct pens. Lastly, we have a completely unrelated pericope in which Jesus encounters a Gentile woman from Phoenicia who has a sick daughter and asks Jesus to heal her. Jesus' reaction seems strange and quite out of character for one who has gone about healing in many places. He refuses her request with an insulting comment designating her a dog, one of the most insulting things one could say to a person at that time, as dogs were highly unclean, almost like pigs. This is a very troubling passage for many people. Various explanations have been offered for what happened here regarding the dog comment. Here are four of them. First, Perhaps Jesus is using the diminutive word for dogs, that is, puppies or doggies, indicating that he didn't really despise foreigners as many other Jews did. But late Greek uses diminutives carelessly, and we do not know what Semitic word Jesus might have used. Second, Jesus may be saying to the woman, My disciples regard Gentiles as dogs. What do you and I have to say about that? In other words, he's trying to teach his followers a lesson. But there's no evidence for this in the story. And it seems strange that when the woman was deeply distressed over her daughter's sickness, that Jesus would needlessly keep her in suspense for a teachable moment. Third, Jesus is simply testing the sincerity of her humility and faith. But what he says is so insulting 
that this seems a real stretch. Fourth, it is just barely possible that the exchange involving the dog reference is, not, is from some old anecdote which was not originally connected to Jesus at all and has crept into the gospel tradition. None of these possible explanations seems credible to me. Whatever was in Jesus' mind when he insulted the Gentile woman, the upshot of the story is that the Gentile woman responds to Jesus' insult with good spirit, wit, and great faith. Jesus is exceedingly impressed by her faith. He may well have been almost overcome to find such faith in a Gentile while not finding it in God's chosen people, his own. He is so impressed that he heals her child. Again, this week as last, the tie that binds these readings is faith. Joseph has great faith through many travails, toils, and fears, as you will see if you read the story. The Gentile woman has such great faith that she is able to move Jesus to do something he is clearly loath to do. The message to us is the importance of having faith. And I again suggest that you would invest some time examining your own faith with an eye toward strengthening it. To help you do that, I make a suggestion that you study the Catechism in the prayer book. You can find it on page 845. You will find it quite user-friendly, laid out in question and answer form, and clearly divided by topic. It uses lots of white space and can be picked up and put down as time permits. Since when push comes to shove, Faith is the sine qua non of salvation. Investing some time in building your faith base might well pay handsome dividends. Amen.